Tepper Ajemian, and you're listening to the No Bad Food Podcast. If you're new here, welcome. This is a show about great food and the people who love to make and eat it. Our mandate is simple, to explore, taste, and learn about food in ways that celebrate all the things that make it great. Every week, we dig into a different dish, meal, ingredient, cuisine, or piece of food media, exploring the history and culture around it, sharing favorite recipes, and learning from our wonderful guests. The only rule? You gotta love it. After all, there's no such thing as bad food. Before I dig in, I'd like to take a minute to acknowledge that the studio where we're recording is situated within the traditional and unsurrendered territories of the Ganyangahaga First Nations. As settlers, it's important that we remember that the lands we occupy are not our own, and that we engage in conversations that challenge the colonial mindset. We encourage you to take some time today and every day to reflect on your relationship with the land you live on and with the indigenous communities of that area. Today I've got something a little different for you. We are pulling an episode out of the vault. So back in 2019 uh, and early 2020, I was working on a food show of my own. It was going to be called One Dish, and it was going to be a series of interviews talking with people about the meal, dish, uh, or food experience that changed their outlook on food or that stuck in their memory. I'm really interested in how food affects our memories and and shapes our personalities and shapes our histories. And I was really excited to do this project. I had art, I had music, uh, I had a lineup of guests, and I recorded a pilot with Billy F., who you know from Munch Madness and from previous episodes of No Bad Food. So we recorded this pilot episode in March 2020. We shared the same birthday, March 3rd, and we recorded this the day before, March 2nd, 2020. And it's a wonderful episode um, where, where Billy talks about his memories of fine dining and the way food can be luxury, the way food is centered around pleasure. It's beautifully told. Billy always tells a wonderful story, and I could listen to him talk about food forever. But of course, just 11 days later, our world turned upside down. Montreal shut down for the pandemic, and in the face of how things had changed, I put this project on hold. In the time that I put this project on hold, Tom decided to transform their podcast, which at the time was up for discussion, a general interest comedy podcast, into a food-centered podcast, No Bad Food. And as we talked about it, I talked about still releasing One Dish, but we just figured if we were both recording it out of the same studio, um, we might as well just join forces and make a food podcast together. But I always had this story waiting on my laptop, and it always kind of nagged at me that it hadn't found an audience. So when Billy came on to talk with us for the final episode of Munch Madness after we recorded, I said, hey, you know what? I've still got this interview that we did together back in 2020. I've still just got it on my computer. Uh, I don't think I'm going to make one dish at this point. Would you be okay with it if I release that on No Bad Food? And he agreed. So I'm really happy to see this story reaching audiences. I think about this interview all the time. I hope it sticks with you as well. For the first time, the pilot of the show that never was, One Dish. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to One Dish. I'm your host, Tafer Ajemian. On each episode, I interview guests about that one dish that stands out in their memory. 
For this first season, I'm talking to people who work with food in one way or another. Chefs, food writers, researchers, anyone whose expertise is in what we eat and why we eat it. Today, I'm talking to Billy F. Billy F. DJs as Ada Van Halen, is part of the rap group Ragers, works as a sommelier and chef, and has written about food and culture in Montreal for years. I've heard Billy talk about food before, and I knew I wanted to talk to him for this show. I was sure he would have a great story to tell. He did not disappoint. So, Billy, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. What are we talking about today? We'll be talking about the most exceptional meal I've ever had. For a while, I worked at Vice as a food and lifestyle and culture writer, I guess. Um, and I got to realize one of my dreams. So this needs a bit of context. But um, when I was around 19, I like really discovered wine um, and decided that this was going to be like one of my great hobbies and passions. And um, I didn't really know how to like get started in the world of wine. Um, I didn't know much about them. So I needed to like really start my education. And um, one of the first uh, blogs about wine that I found and that I actually really liked was uh, by this older gentleman called Francois Douze. And uh, basically he collects very, very ancient wines. Um, and when we say ancient, we're talking about anyone that's, you know, at least 25 to 30 years old. Uh, but most of the ones that he drinks are anywhere between, like on a regular day, anywhere between like 175 years old. Um, and so I, I've been reading him for years and he like updates his blog daily with like everything he eats and, and everything he drinks. And uh, I thought that this was just like the most interesting man in the world. So when I worked at Vice, I was going on tour in France with my band. And I asked my boss if I could, Francois organizes dinners, uh, which are not cheap to get into, obviously. Um, but they're just like so extravagant and lavish and it's like everything you would possibly want to try. So uh, I reached out to him and was like, hey, I'll be in France while, while one of your dinners is happening. Can I come and just like sit in on it? And he was like, oh, just like come and eat and drink with us. Like just come have fun. Don't even worry about money or anything. Like this is on me. Uh, the dinner was at the Taivant, which is one of the most iconic restaurants in Paris, if not the world super old school like super like a butler holding out an umbrella for you in front of the restaurant while you're having a cigarette if it's raining i met him a bit earlier i met francois a bit earlier at his uh in his cellar which was just outside of paris uh got there two hours late because it was like terrible traffic it's always in paris i get there and it's just like thousands upon thousands of some of the world's like greatest wines and things that you just cannot find anywhere else um, and the thing with collecting wine is a lot of the time people sort of do it more for financial reasons or for like, you know, just to be able to say like, I am the last person to have this bottle, but he's like, I am the last person to have this bottle and I will drink it. Like I will enjoy, there will be nothing left after this because I will have had the last sip of it. So he takes me through all of that and shows me like, I mean, we're talking about 
at least six million dollars worth of wine and that's just one of his sellers so basically he bought an entire house in the suburbs and filled it with wine um he didn't give me the exact address he sent a cab uh so i could know where it was and he has like four of these dispersed throughout paris um all with like an insane amount of wine in them uh so we taste a bit and then we head to the restaurant a bit later uh me and my photographer had brought my photographer cassandra along and um he starts opening the bottles of wine but these are like very old bottles so you can't just open them the way that you would like any regular bottle you have to open them very slowly a lot of these corks are very old and fragile so they they chip and a lot of things can go wrong and also um, a lot of these wines, you know, especially wines that are like older than a hundred years old, uh, they haven't been in contact for with with oxygen for that long. So you need to very slowly reintroduce oxygen to the bottle because otherwise you'll just kill the wine. Sort of like if someone's in the desert for you know ten days and you give them like a bunch of water all at once, they'll die. So the same thing. Uh, it's a very long process, but then guests are coming and we start tasting and something in the room changes just like when people walk in and see you know 15 of some of the world's rarest wines and you know you're in this very uh luxurious setting you know it's like a small private room in like a very old hotel slash restaurant um beautiful wallpaper like all very like uh Haussmann era Paris you know like third republic Paris as people start coming in we started off the night with a um Moet Chandon Grand Vintage uh 1983 in a magnum uh which is hands down the greatest champagne I've ever had in my life and with it they started bringing you Gougère which are like little cheese puffs um Taiwan I, I think Gujas were actually invented at Taiwan legendary they're so good um so you just start popping those and then small little pieces of toast with um Iberico ham and like a fleck of salt and a bit of olive oil and with the champagne you just like you almost feel high like everything goes perfectly well together and mind you I'm in a setting that is not the kind of setting that I'm used to being at. I've worked in restaurants, you know, most of my life, but I've always worked at restaurants where things were a bit more casual. This was like always the, the sort of restaurant that that people think about when they think classy, but this was like another level of that. Um, so I'm in a room with 10 older, insanely more rich people than I am. And I was scared. You know, like you're, you're, I, I was the only person under 40. I was, yeah, by far the poorest person there. And also, you know, like I'm this young tattooed black kid who shows up in, you know, this setting where usually like some of the biggest transactions in the world have happened in there, you know? Um, so it's a, it, it's a very intimidating thing. But then Gujar start rolling out and, and toast and we start drinking and like everything feels so everything starts to feel right but then we sit down and we actually start eating um so let me just 
talk you through the the menu here because it's really a I, th- I think it really uh shows like the the gastronomy of france in in the most perfect way because it's it's a very beautiful balance of like very old recipes but that have been adapted um not only for the great wines that we were drinking but for like a more modern palate uh so we started with uh as i said the gougère and the ham toast then we did uh huître angeline mer so beautiful beautiful oysters that they basically took out the the brine that was in the oyster and um, made this sort of like very aromatic gel out of it that they put back on top of the oyster. And so that sort of like cuts the need for adding a mignonette or for adding lemon or anything really. It's just like the perfect oyster. Then Bardeling sea bass with, uh, what was the bouquet de Bretagne? Oh yeah, this was like, these sort of burnt spices that they they sort of made like a a stick of of spices that they would burn and then like sort of throw the ashes on the fish and with the smokiness and everything it was like it was insane it was it was a very surreal experience then we went on to uh blue lobster that was stewed in a red wine sauce which was one of the most insane things I've ever tasted in my life. And it's topped with like beautiful black truffle. It was amazing. Uh, then we had the chausseron feuilleté de pigeon foie gras. So um, pigeon or squab uh, stuffed in like this little puff pastry with uh, foie gras and then uh, mushrooms and roasted pear. Then, Yevre à la, Loyale, à la Royale, which is one of the most iconic dishes of, of French gastronomy, which is um, hair that's been stewed it's in its own blood. That is also a, a great dish that people don't really eat anymore. It, it's this sort of like very peasant dish, but that has somehow become like extremely luxurious because it's a very painstaking process. Um, but it's if you ever get to if ever you see it on the menu, you should eat it. And we finished off with a dessert that I unfortunately that's not true I tasted it, uh, but it was a croissant mangue and um, a mango and uh, passion fruit uh, tart that I shouldn't have eaten because I'm allergic to both of those things. But I was like <laughs> I'll taste it because I have to. And we finished off with uh, madeleines, which was like a very beautiful way I think of ending the meal because it's sort of like represents you know in in french and i think in english we use it too but in french we talk about la madeleine de proust which is like tasting something and and immediately when you taste it going back to like a very vivid memory and um so finishing off with madeleine was like a beautiful way to to finish that off because i will always go back to that memory all the food is really sounds simple but perfectly executed yeah definitely i like i think you know, the the more I, I progress in the world of food, the more I realize that less is more. Um, you know, we did have a trend for a while of, like, trying to come up with the most ridiculous stuff. But at the end of the day, like, you really don't need much. You, you don't need that much in your plate. Uh, we don't need to eat as much as we do, and we don't need to eat all of the things that we do. I think that if you have, like, a perfect piece of fish... There's not much that you 
should or could do to it to like make a perfect dish you know just add a bit of salt some butter a bit of lemon white wine and just like even a perfectly baked potato next to that is just like a perfect meal yeah absolutely so you said this was like your first real fine fine dining this was like by no means the most expensive meal i've ever had right but it was um the most uh i guess the the right word would be like stoic you know like it it's Mm. It was the first time that I walked into a restaurant and like everything was made to either make you feel extremely important or very poor, (laughs) you know, Um, literally everything was just like covered in in gold leaf and there's like beautiful diamond chandeliers and it's just like extremely luxurious and it's very, it was a very like, uh, it felt stiff, you know, like I, like there was a dress code. Yeah, I've been to millions of restaurants all over the world, and that was the first time that like I was expected to dress a certain way to come into the establishment, which you know I guess is cool because it adds to the experience and, and and it helps it maintain a certain level of sophistication. I guess um, it's not something that I personally approve of or would do, but I get it. You used the word old school. Yeah. Yeah, with which yeah, I guess, in, in, especially in Parisian school. fine dining, is such a yeah. Well, I mean, because like there are very few of those restaurants left in Paris, and and I'm glad they are because I've been going to Paris forever, many times a year, and like every time I come back, things change, and that's one of the most beautiful things I've changed. Like when I first started going, when I was working in France, like I couldn't afford a lot of the restaurants that I want to go to, and now you know. Even when I'm broke in Paris, I can still, like, go out and have a really good meal with, like, exceptional wine and some of the literally, like, the best products in the world for not that much money. Um, So I'm happy that that happened. How do you think the, like, incredibly stiff, formal atmosphere, because you've talked about it both with kind of awe and also awkwardness, right? This is a beautiful experience. It's cool to see it. And also I feel weird is kind of the, the, like, juxtaposition I'm getting for you. Can, Can you speak a little bit to how that affected, like, your experience of the meal? Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, so... For one, it was uh, th- like so many of their references were past me. And also, I think that when you're allowed in allowed in those sort of spaces where like um, extremely rich and powerful people are discussing, you sort of have to like show that you are not paying attention to the private conversation they're having. Mm-hmm. So I was like very much by myself and, but I was also just trying to like take it all in and didn't necessarily want to like discuss or, you know, say certain things in my Quebecois accent for old French white dudes who thought it was funny. Uh, So there was that. Then there's also the part of me that, uh, you know, as someone who really, really cares about the history of food was like, I get to live this experience and not much has changed in this restaurant since it opened, you know, 150 years ago. Um, everything, I mean, everything was basically the same. Like a lot of the forks were pristine, but you could tell that 
they'd been used a million times before. Um, so noticing like all of those details was also a lot of fun. And then there's a side where like, you know, this is the man that I look up to probably the most in, in my wine career. And I'm actually here like eating what he talks about eating all the time and drinking what he talks about drinking all the time. And I knew, and at that point, I sort of knew that that wasn't the wine that I wanted to drink anymore. Like, it was very clear in my head already that natural wine was, like, my thing. But it sort of felt like the, it sort of felt like the last time that I would be in that environment, which is something that I hope, because I hope that things will change, you know? Like, I hope that things like, you know, 10 millionaires meeting in a Parisian restaurant to do sketchy stuff will never happen again. Um, and yeah, so so it felt like, it felt like saying goodbye to something and sort of like stocking that in my Rolodex of memories and being able to come back to it all the time. Like I will never forget this, but um, I don't know that I will or want to live that again. Right. Do you think it affected the way you approach food or wine or both? Like, do you think something changed? Uh, yeah, it, it really solidified for me the, uh, the historical importance of wine. Because what makes these wines so expensive is not so much that, um, that they're rare, because, you know, obviously they are. There aren't that much wines from 1957 in circulation. And like there will never be again. So when you're drinking that bottle at that moment in that place, that means something. And that's like you're drinking history. And also it's like it's ephemeral. Once you drink it, it's gone, you know. So I used the example of like it's sort of like if someone cut up a Picasso into a thousand pieces, there would be a thousand people ready to buy that piece for a lot of money. And that's sort of what drinking those wines was like and so that really solidified in me like the importance of of the historical aspect of wine um do you want to talk about natural wine sure let's talk about natural wine because i'm curious thinking about the historicity yeah yeah, of wine um because your interest is in natural wine which is wines that are made with no preservatives that are just juice fermented more or less correct yeah which is a historical method of making wine, right? Like non-natural wines are a fairly new invention. Am I right about that? Is that true? Yeah, well, I mean, well, so people have fucked with wine forever um, in different ways. But, and and I think that that's where the, um, I think that that's where the, the appellations of wine come into play. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for example, like in France, historically you had, you know, either Grand Cru, Premier Cru, uh, or you had an Appalachian wine, and then you had just Vin Table. Uh, Vin Table was, you know, people don't do that anymore, but not that long ago, uh, I think it was like as recently as in the 30s, the average person in France was drinking 165 liters of wine uh, a year. Kids would drink wine at the cafeteria at school. Like wine was, you know, it was the drink because water wasn't that safe to drink my dad grew up drinking wa- wine in in france in the yeah. 50s yeah or 40s yeah 
Yeah. So, um, so that was just wine that you know was made very much in the same way as the wines that I appreciate now. Um, I wine is like a part of my everyday life, and I want to drink it all the time. <laughs> You know, and I'm always reasonable. Like, you will never see me, like, drunk off my ass off, offline. But, um, you know, it's just, like, it's something that I that I really care about and, and that I want to drink all the time. It's, like, a beverage that makes me extremely happy. Um, so I want to and, – and I want to pass on that love of wine to other people. Um, now, there's different – kinds of wines there's uh more conventional wines which uh you know are more affordable i guess but not even really that much um but they're just like i think they're more for people who find one wine and Mm -hmm. are okay with that and are like okay this is my wine and this is what i am drinking now um and that that will change you know every three or four months or so I am more the kind of person who will like try to find something new every time so I can tell everyone about it. Um, And yeah, so I like I think that with conventional wine, that sense of of history is sort of lost because I like wines that tell a story and I like to know, you know, how old the vines are. Um, What kind of soil do they have? What's the climate like? What's the history of that region? Are those the are those the grapes that they have always used, or have those been more recently planted because of some law or whatever? Um, and so, yeah, when I serve a wine at the restaurant, I want to be able to tell the the customer's story about it. And you just can't get that with conventional wines. One, because I don't want to serve them at my restaurant because <laughs> they're full of chemicals, and you know the cooks don't go through all that hard work to find like sustainable organic products to then have clients wash it down with like something that you know is made by the millions every day and is just like full of preservatives and additives um i want my wine to be as organic as my food and i want it to be as alive and vibrant as my food i want there to be a sense of place and and of time when you drink it and yeah. It, like this is such a deep subject that I can talk about forever. But yeah, I mean, essentially that's what it is. So I try to, uh, I think that, you know, with my work, both as a writer, as a DJ, and then also as as a salmon, as someone who works in food, my my main goal is to try to tell a story and like give a platform to people who otherwise might sort of go unnoticed. So yeah, when I go to France and I meet like this young winemaker who, you know, ditched everything in the US to like go make wine in France, even though he started drinking wine like three years ago and has no idea how to make wine. That's the kind of story I want to tell if, you know, the product and the bottle at the end of the day is really good. So I want to circle back again to kind of dining experience mm-hmm. because your story that you brought is very much about dining experience. Yeah. And now you're talking again about dining experience kind of in a different way. Yeah. You're talking about what you're bringing customers at your restaurant. Um, can you talk a little bit just about how you think about dining experience as a whole when you're when you're thinking about the stories you tell at a restaurant and how you tell them? Yeah. Well, I mean, so the thing for me, a restaurant is sort of the same thing. Like it also has to, to tell a story. And I think that we really have that in in Montreal. You know, like I think that 
um, at least a lot of the restaurants that, that I go to and a lot of the best restaurants in Montreal um, tell a story, you know, and, and for us in Quebec, it's especially, and in France, I guess, too, it's like, who did you work for before you opened your restaurant? And how did you take, you know, all the best from all the knowledge they've passed down to you and what are you doing with it? Mm-hmm. So, you know, for me, a really great example is, um, is Elena in St. Henry, uh, you know, where uh, Ryan used to be the Salmon Joe Beef and then, you know, they left, they opened Nora Gray and now they opened Elena and Elena is sort of like, uh, it, it, like we sort of went back to what I thought it would be when they got out of Joe Beef and mm. opened Nora, you know, like I knew that it would lead to that and that's why it's one of my favorite restaurants. Um, same thing if you look at uh, a restaurant like M. Wells in Brooklyn, you know, where Dufour used to work for Martin Picard at Pied-de-Cochon for years. And then, you know, he followed his girlfriend to the U.S. and opened a restaurant in New York, which very quickly got a Michelin star. Mm-hmm. He couldn't, he could have made the same menu, um, probably even more luxurious because things are cheaper here. So he could have made the same menu here and he would not have gotten a Michelin star because we don't have Michelin star restaurants in, in Canada. <laughs> But in the U.S., he got it right away, even though he opened the same sort of restaurant that he would have opened in Montreal. You know, like he found an old diner and just like made it his and serves some of the world's best food. So, yeah, that like when I say an experience, you know, for me, being drunk at at 2 a.m. and ordering a kebab is like just as meaningful a restaurant experience as sitting down and having a 12 course meal. It's about the interaction you have with um, the people that make your food and the respect that they give to the products that that they source. There's kind of one more thing I want to get into that I feel like we've sort of skated mm-hmm. around a few times which is this this contrast between like high dining which I'm doing in air quotes mm-hmm. and like casual dining and I feel like it's very much the same conversation people have a lot around like high art and low art or like yeah. anything that people want to um, feel superior about which is something I mean as you've kind of alluded to that is really big in wine and in food mm-hmm. I do feel like currently there's a big movement of kind of breaking down that barrier in food like in food media especially do you think that fine dining has value do you think that there's something valuable to having a meal that's expensive because Mm -hmm. it's in a 150 year old restaurant covered in gold leaf uh let me put it this way i mean again it goes back to like having a story uh I think that, you know, places like Taiwan should exist. And I, I don't think that they should stay um, this this stoic about it. But, like, I think that we should preserve that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, recently I was at uh, Milos, which, you know, there's there's one on Park, but they, they just opened one in New York City. And, you know, we went, and that was probably, like, we were, what, a group of six? That was... A meal that costs like several thousands of dollars. Were we, you know, excited when we left? Like, were we happy with our meal? Yeah. Would we have been happier going somewhere that would have been less expensive? Probably. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, fine dining is cool. And like charging a lot for restaurants is cool too. Mm-hmm. Like I've, I've nothing against that because 
you know, there's, there's this weird thing where like, obviously as a millennial, I don't have that much money. I would like to go to restaurants. I, okay, that's not true. I'd go to enough restaurants. I go to a lot of restaurants. <laughs> and, and like, I realize that uh, we're not being charged enough for our food. You know, we're really not like, yes, we get to have cheap food, but people have demanded higher quality products before they demanded um, better treatment for the people who make their food. So, you know, if you're having an exceptional meal and it wasn't that that expensive, there's probably a cook somewhere who like suffered for that. So thank them. Make sure to be nice to them. Tip them if you can. So yeah, I'm like I just want to redefine well, I don't personally want to redefine fine dining, but I think that we need to have a conversation about how we're going to redefine it because also, I mean, we called it fine dining back then because, you know, for the same reason that we called them the fine arts back mm-hmm. then because this was seen as like the apex of what luxury could be. But, you know, between you and me who in this generation is that what we want when we go to a restaurant no i don't think so i think that for us luxury is you know more about like sharing a pizza and and you know that that is naturally leavened and that you know everything is traceable and having a great bottle of wine and and you know doing that on a terrace in our shorts and like not having to care about anything um for me that's way more of a luxury than like getting to finally sit down at this reserve at the spot that's like impossible to reserve at and that will cost me you know like 10 grand for a meal for six people yeah it's almost like in when you have scarcity like our generation does has a lot of scarcity you don't have to like invent luxury anymore yeah and like, like no good you food. know good for, food is like luxury. and also for our generation like high low has been so incorporated like so many of the things that would have cost a lot of money and would have been in like fancy restaurants in the 90s have spent the past 20 years like being brought down to like the lowest common denominator and now you know you can walk in pretty much any french restaurant in montreal and get a plate of escargot for cheap you know probably like under 10 bucks but this was seen as like a great new thing that was like very luxurious and hard to have 25 30 years ago Mm -hmm. so things are just changing you know uh also we don't want truffles on anything like we yes obviously like we want truffles but i think that it means a lot more to us and we care a lot more about knowing that our tomato is organic and locally sourced than you know someone being like oh and we put truffles in there it's like cool but you know take care of the basics first and then let's talk about like luxury and i think that access to basics for our generation are becoming a luxury it makes me think of what you were saying about um hair earlier and how it was a peasant dish and now it's this apex of fine dining and even just like when my parents were kids in in the 50s when my dad was in France locally grown organic produce Mm -hmm. was something everybody could have more or less um and like for the French it's been like a basic right It, it wasn't even like a question and now but even I mean even even here 
you know, not that long ago. And now that's the luxury thing. It's, it's, is it local? Is it organic? Do I know that the person growing it, um, you know, can also buy dinner? It's a really different paradigm. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This was me. great. This was fun. One thing Billy said really stood out to me. When I say an experience, you know, for me, being drunk at, at 2 a.m. and ordering kebab is like just as meaningful a restaurant experience as sitting down and having a 12-course meal. It's about the interaction you have with um, the people that make your food and the respect that they give to the products that, that they source. What struck me throughout our conversation is that Billy talks about this stunning high-end meal with reverence, but also with a tone of finality. That meal, in so many ways, personal and cultural, signals the end of an era, a turn away from the culture where food's quality is defined by its table setting in favor of a culture where food quality speaks for itself. He's talking about redefining luxury in a way that embraces ideas of simplicity, community, and above all, really good food. Thanks for listening to One Dish. This episode was produced and edited by me, Tefer Ajemian. Thanks to Andrew Van Norstrand for letting me use his track, The Water Thrush, Origami Reel, off his album that we could find a way to be. You can find Andrew's music for sale at andrewvannorstrandmusic.bandcamp.com. Hello, my name is Stefan, and please join me every week for my podcast, Some Good Friends, a show where I talk to some good friends of mine. Previous guests have included a Reiki healer, the heir to the Redenbacher popcorn throne, the person definitely not responsible for the murder hornet outbreak, and Jack Nicholson. Comes out Mondays, early in the morning. Check it out, and you might laugh. On behalf of the Canadian people, welcome to the Gay and Grey Podcast. Gay and Grey Montreal is a new social group for English-speaking gay elders from the 2S LGBTQIA plus communities. So it's a good way to at least connect with people. Members share their experiences, memories, and opinions on our podcast. Welcome to our community. I hope you feel well. I hope you feel accepted. And I hope that you can share anything that you want. This is some of my story. And I hope you enjoy it. Oh, I have a great story. (laughs) 